Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Holly George Warren, author of 16 books, most recently Janice, Her Life and Music, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Holly's also a two-time Grammy nominee and the longtime editor of Rolling Stone's book division, and a lot of books came out of that job. Yes, over 40 books over the years, from photo books, anthologies of writing from the magazine going back to the earliest issues, to all kinds of rock and roll reference books, the Rolling Stone Encyclopedia of Rock and Roll, Album Guide, Illustrated History of Rock and Roll. We did it all. And you wrote biographies of Alex Chilton and Gene Autry, so this is your third biography, I believe. Yes, it is. But this book, Janice, Her Life and Music, is a real accomplishment. Um, I think the highest compliment I can pay to it is, by the end, I was dreading what was coming as I was reading the last you know, 100 to 50 pages. And then for the first time, although this is someone who died before I was born, I never mourned her until I read this book. And after I finished the book, I was really, really sad for a while. You know, it's her life is in some ways a, a tragedy, in some ways not. How do you see that? Well, yes. I mean, she died way too young. I came to love Janice myself working on this book. And interestingly, I was alive when she was around, but I was just a wee lassie, you know, living in North Carolina. And basically, Pearl, her posthumous album that came out in 71, was the first Janice album that I got. And I didn't know that much about her as far as her own path, her own journey as a musician, as an artist. I'd, of course, read some books along the way. And she created such a vivid persona, this image that I bought, hook, line, and sinker, this kind of blues mama and this kind of this flash of talent and energy. And then poof, she was gone like a comet. But going back and learning about her over actually quite a few years, going back to when I was at Rolling Stone and got to participate in conferences at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame about Janice, I decided, wow, you know, there's so much about her I don't know. And I really want to understand Janice the person, but also Janice the musician, because I had never really gotten a sense of that from the other books. So luckily for me, I got to meet people close to her, her bandmates, people that worked with her, Chet Helms, who took her to San Francisco for the first time back in 63, way before Big Brother and the Holding Company. And I was able to go back and meet friends of hers from high school and learn about her youth and her evolution as an artist looking to find out out about music and things like that that took her on her journey out of Port Arthur, Texas. So, yes, I'm always sad. I still tear up sometimes when I'm reading my book myself when we lose her. But the thing about Janice is, is she made a lot of uh, tough decisions and she was fearless and she knew what she was doing. She knew she was taking a lot of risks. So I really do not want her to come across as a victim in my book. I mean, we're the victims because we lost her. But she made those choices. And, you know, sadly, it was an accidental overdose that took her out when she was only 27. Now, among the many things I was struck by is the extent to which Janice was pushing boundaries for a young woman in any era, but especially her era, and it actually reminded me weirdly of Anthony DeCurtis' recent bio of Lou Reed, where you learn how ahead of the time he was, where people in high school were just like, this guy is insane. And it was in some ways very similar because these were people who were literally ahead of their time. They were ready to create 
the next generation in the next era, but she was already living it. Although from her perspective, she was a beatnik, so she was in a previous era. But what surprised you most about how far she pushed it even by the time she was 18 years old. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the Lou Reed book by Anthony DeCurtis because I did read that book and loved it and I thought there were some real connections in the persona of both Lou Reed and Janice and I mean, I think Lou himself was also very much inspired by the Beats early on and there was that whole idea of, for Janice, when she was 14 years old, she read On the Road by Jack Kerouac when it was published in 57 and his whole concept of beat being kind of beaten down, you know, outsider, kind of outcast, but still trying to experience life, experience the dark corners of life away from that post-World War II optimistic, like, you know, the white picket fence and everything, you know, the husband, wife and two kids and the dog, that kind of idea of life. And Janice at such a young age really glommed on to the idea of the beats. Soon after that, she discovered the blues. She discovered some Lead Belly records, and then after that, Bessie Smith. When it rains five days and the skies turn dark at night. And that just totally turned her around as far as what music could be. Now, she grew up at a time when, you know, the early rock and roll, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, she heard some amazing music driving around in... You know, she was in the Gulf Coast area of Texas, and they used to call it uh, doing the triangle, going from Port Arthur to Beaumont to Orange, just listening to the radio, smoking cigarettes, drinking beer, you know. And she was really a fan, and she was also uh, very, very uh, curious and wanted to find more of this music, like the Lead Belly and the Bessie Smith, which those records were really hard to find in the 1950s. So she started seeking out that kind of music, but she didn't consider herself a singer. She was born with a beautiful soprano voice that she used in the church choir and the glee club and school and everything, but it was only after she started trying to work with her voice and sing in a different way with more guts and with more uh, rough edges to it, that's when she really started to find herself as a singer. And she wouldn't have done that, I don't think, if it hadn't been for, like Lou Reed, kind of going outside the norm of what her typical rah-rah you know, culture was in Port Arthur, Texas in the 1950s. There's a moment when she kind of, for the first time, breaks out into the first version of that voice, and it was actually imitating Odetta is what she was doing. Yes, uh, she was really drawn to African American voices. And she discovered an Odetta record. Now, Odetta was a trained, I think she was even an opera singer, like Janice. She could sing all different kinds of music. Janice called it her kind of mule skinner blues type of uh, sound was what Janice was drawn to. But again, you know, I mean, this there was so much amazing music going on in that period in that part of the country that I think she really glommed on to. But she would actually go up to radio stations at night to try to meet the DJ and like find that. out about the records and like, can I get you some coffee and stuff like that? Because she was just obsessed. But she thought she was going to be an artist. She wanted to be a painter. She was quite talented artistically. But when she started singing for an audience, basically by the time she enrolled at UT for a while in Austin, Texas in 1962, and started getting that feeling of the audience feedback when she sang and performing with this little combo. 
combo called the Waller Creek Boys. That really set her on her path to become a performer as well as a singer. And that's one of the things you emphasize is while in interviews she would kind of propagate this myth that it was all kind of an accident and she fell into it, there actually was a long period of training and studying that led her to develop her style and voice. Yes, she was the perpetual student of music and she was still doing that, you know, when she recorded Pearl in 1970. She never wanted to just kind of stay with one sound or one style of music. She was driven to continually evolve as an artist, sing different styles of music, different musical backing. Again, she tried to make it early on after she left Austin in 63 as a blues singer doing some originals. She'd already started writing songs herself. She learned how to play auto harp. She was teaching herself guitar. And so she went out to the coffee house scene in San Francisco and actually first rubbed shoulders with people like Yor McAlkinen and Jerry Garcia, who of course later, a few years later, they'd all be the king and queen of the counterculture and Haight-Ashbury and all that. But uh, she did that for a while. So, I mean, she was constantly evolving as an artist, but also working really hard, too. And yeah, I totally always bought her myth that she's just like kind of, it's all about the feel, baby, you know, and just going out there and just letting it all out and just kind of almost like it just kind of came out of her. And that was really not the case. It was uh, lots and lots of hard work and effort on her part. That trip to San Francisco, the first one, is one of the places where I said, wow, this was an incredibly brave young woman because it was so outside of the norm for that time. And she was taking huge risks. And then she did very quickly. She ended up pretty horrifyingly ended up a very serious speed addict with terrifying speed. Yeah, yeah. It was, And actually, Brian, believe it or not, that was actually her second time hitchhiking to San Francisco. She first went when she was 18 years old, hitchhiked. She was living out in Venice Beach trying to be a beatnik. Right. And so she hitchhiked up to San Francisco and kind of just hung out, checked out the scene and everything, and then took the bus back home to Texas. But yes, when she really went to try to make it, it's hard for us to imagine now because there's such infrastructure structure now if you want to build an audience and go out and perform but here she was you know all alone a young woman nowhere to live sleeping on floors sometimes slept on the floor of the coffee house where she performed making you know five or six dollars maybe usually uh, past the hat kind of things and speed was everywhere in north beach in the summer of that period of the early 60s and she yeah she fell into that and you know, in the beginning, she and some of her friends were doing it because it just like taking pet pills, which she had done in college, even they were very widely available in those days. And then she went from that to methamphetamine and horribly ended up injecting it. So she definitely pretty much wrecked herself at that point. And by 1965, she had really won a lot of fans with her voice. But by then, she was really sidetracked by, you know, she was down to like 88 pounds and had to go back to Austin. And Well, first she went back to Port Arthur and was kind of nursed back to health by her family. And then eventually she ended up performing in Austin again. There's a harrowing moment when in that early dissolution she fell into, there's a sign up at a club, at, I think in San Francisco, it said, do not under any circumstances give money to Janis Joplin or something like that, which is like, yikes. I mean, that yeah. shows how far she went know, so fast. Yeah. And again, you have to remember how old she was. You know, she was still in her early 20s at this point. So she was just this kid. She really had, for the first time in her life, all these wide open possibilities to just go out there and really be beat. <laughs> so uh, she did that. And 
It really scared her, though. She knew how close to death she had come. And when she did go back home, she totally straightened up. She actually transformed into this Texas college co-ed commuting to Lamar Tech in Beaumont, Texas, wanted to be a sociology major. Fortunately for me, she wrote amazing letters. Oh my God, these letters that she wrote to this horrible CAD con man boyfriend that she had, who was her supposed fiance. She wrote like 70 or 80 letters over about three or four months. And they're just so self-analytical. They're funny. They describe her life, her state of mind, her family. I mean, it's, it's literally like I got her memoir or something, getting to read all those letters. Which were in like a family archive that they allowed you access to? No, those oh. letters, yeah, she later wrote home to her family a lot when she ran off again in 66. She told her parents she was going to Austin for the weekend. She really moved back to San Francisco. So, <laughs> of course, they were horrified because they thought she was going to end up like she had the first time. And so she wrote home a lot of letters. So, yes, the family shared those with me. These letters, thank goodness the guy, the one good thing about him being such a con man, horrible guy, was that he sold the letters. So I was able to find lots of them through some dealers who handle rare manuscripts and letters who very kindly gave me scans to read. I found some on the internet from other auction houses who have them up for sale. And I think the family had a couple that they had actually purchased over the years. So I was able to track down a lot of them. And also she wrote letters to you know some of her girlfriends that I was able to track down. So luckily she left this amazing paper trail. Yeah, it really strikes me that uh, it's going to be a lot harder, of course, for for people to write biographies of people in the post-letter writing era. Once again, you're so fortunate that she was such a prolific and articulate and confessional letter writer. Oh my God. And you know, what's interesting is um, the family was great. They did share with me a lot of her personal effects that are in a vault out in Los Angeles. And I thought it was so cool. They had quite a few of her books that she had in her home when she passed away. And one of them was a collected letters of F. Scott Fitzgerald. So she liked reading other people's letters too, which is pretty cool. The period in which she went back home for a while and, like you said, tried to be sort of a regular Texas young woman. Actually, again, Lou Reed did the same thing after Velvet Underground. Very strange. These are two people I never thought of any parallels before I read these two books. But again, you feel very sad for her because she's trapped in this, even after everything, she wanted to fulfill what society wanted for her. It and was it just really was more never, her parents, I yeah. think. Yeah, I wouldn't say it was society, but it was her parents because right. she knew how horrified they were that she had almost died before. And she wanted to please them because, of course, they, especially her mom, wanted her to be, yes, a traditional college co-ed mom and wife and all that stuff. And there was part of Janice that did want those things, you know, especially the security, because this was a very loving, close-knit family that she came from. Now, her dad was a real kind of outside-the-box kind of dude. He was an atheist in Port Arthur, Texas, which was quite you know, unheard of in those days. She also saw her dad's obsession with music. Now, he was really into classical music. He'd come home from working at Texaco, worked in the oil business, um, middle management, and would come home and listen to Bach and Beethoven at night. And he loved to read. He read history and philosophy and, you know, really encouraged her to be different, to think outside the box, to voice her opinions. And girls in Port Arthur, Texas, were not actually looked upon as being people that should be voicing their opinions. So 
for example, in school, she, you know, had been fairly popular and done all those kind of 50s traditionalist type of activities in school. But by the time she got to high school, she was doing things like standing up in favor of desegregation, which was really frowned upon in Texas at that time. And she, of course, got really into music. She started sneaking off, going across the river to hear some live bands play in these roadhouses in Louisiana. She'd be the only girl in a carload of boys. So she started getting a real bad reputation in town. So by the time she was like 11th, 12th grade, she was pretty much hated and bullied and mistreated by her peers in school. Yeah, and they were spreading totally fictional rumors about her sex life, which seemed to have then played into, you had people saying that if people were saying that she was easy, et cetera, et cetera, might as well be. And so that seemed to have kicked off her actual sexuality in some weird way. Yeah, it was, you know, again, it, this was the 50s and they had all these morals, especially for the girls, you know, the guys in town, hey, all the boys could go hang out at the local brothels. I mean, there was this big red light district right there in Port Arthur where the guys would go. And of course, if the girls did anything like that, their reputations would be dashed forever. At the same time, once her sexuality did develop, Again, talk about ahead of her time. She was entirely open and fluid in her bisexuality in a way that even seemed to shock people on the San Francisco scene sometimes, which just shows how far out she was. Yeah. I mean, again, there's so many, yeah, it's parallels with Lou Reed, right? Who knew? Yeah. She was, you know, still quite young and openly had relationships with both women and men beginning when she was very young, even before she moved out to San Francisco. And she was polyamorous and made no bones about it. And I think she really just, again, she wanted to follow her own passions, her own heart, her own desires, regardless of what the cultural norms were at that time. And in fact, I think that's what led to the horrible incident that occurred when she was in Austin. And that's what made it so sad for her when she would build up all these people in her life that really cared about her and supported her and loved her. And then they would turn on her with this horrible, you know, vitriol. And just like, you know, in school, she had friends growing up and then all of a sudden everybody turned against her. Well, in Austin, she became kind of the darling of the the scene playing music. She was featured in the school, the UT newspaper with an article titled, She Dares to Be Different, and was playing at Threadgills and really built up a big following. She, again, she had relationships with guys and gals, in particular, one woman that was known to be lesbian. And so the fraternity guys, I think, singled Janice out because of her notoriety as a singer on campus. And they had this ugliest man on campus contest that usually they nominate like a linebacker or something from the football team. So one of these jerks, of course, picked Janice as being one of the contestants and plastered her name on a poster all over campus as one of the candidates for the ugliest man on campus, which was just so horrible and hurtful. And I think, again, part of it was that she was different. She hung out with men and women and was seen often with another woman, etc. So it was kind of this anti-lesbian, anti-gay kind of thing against her. But it was it was really painful. And so she ended up leaving soon after that and hitchhiking out to San Francisco in 19- 
1963. You know, the time that she was enrolled at UT, went a couple of semesters, then she dropped out just the week of her 20th birthday, and that's when she moved out to San Francisco and was doing the coffee house folk scene kind of thing, playing Bessie Smith songs and her own stuff. And she did actually, you know, one of her future band members who actually formed Big Brother and Holding Company, bassist Peter Albin, he was on that folk scene. He and his brother had a little duo, and um, so she did kind of meet him then. So a lot of people who would become part of her inner circle just a few years later in 66 when she moved out for good and joined Big Brother and the Holding Company. That's when she got embedded with them. Let's jump to 66 when Dennis Joplin moves out to San Francisco again. And this time, Big Brother and Holding Company are essentially waiting for her. She got to audition like the moment she got there, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, they've been together since 65. They've been playing some of the crazy, like, you know, acid tests and things like that. And, you know, the scene was really starting to cook by 66 in San Francisco. I mean, you know, you talk about the summer of love, really, you know, 66 was the real summer of love. And that's when she arrived in June. Now, Chet Helms, who she knew, also a Texan, met him in Austin in that period, you know, sorry to be confusing, but in 63, she had originally hitchhiked with him to San Francisco. He stayed when she left to come back to get off speed and everything. So anyway, he became really part of the whole ground zero of the family dog. He started the Avalon Ballroom. So he was part of that and he was managing Big Brother and the Holding Company. Now, a couple of bands had female singers. Great Society had one named Grace Slick. And hmm. another one called Jefferson Airplane had uh, Signe Anderson. And later, of course, Grace would take her place. <laughs> they hadn't quite finalized everything yes, yet yeah. on this scene, yeah. But uh, Big Brother, uh, Peter Albin, who co-founded it, was doing most of the singing. But, you know, it was a very democratic band. It was part of that whole communal kind of thing, just like Grateful Dead at that time. So different singers uh, sang different songs, different members of the band. There was two guitarists, Sam Andrew and James Gurley. They contributed songs, too, and they sang some songs. But they were realizing if they had a strong female singer, it could bring them up a notch, you know. And so Janice came out and, you know, she thought it was an audition, but the minute she opened her mouth and started singing, they knew, oh my gosh, this woman is amazing. And she had never, ever sang with uh, an electric band before. She suddenly had to completely change her style because she had these really loud guitars behind her. They were rehearsing at this old funky carriage house kind of loft place with no monitors or anything. I mean, the clubs didn't have monitors, really. And she had to be able to hear herself suddenly seeing over this blaring what they called freak rock at the time. So it was <laughs> it was a huge, again, another evolution musically for Janice to adapt and uh, come up with this whole new style of singing and, of course, develop this amazing stage presence that she did. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating that she hadn't thought of herself at all as a rock singer up until practically that moment when she got in front of Big Brother and the Holding Company. She really had thought of herself as a blues singer, had done this rootsier stuff that leaned towards country. But there she was. And it's sort of like she had gone to a certain point in her development, but it took standing in front of that band to take her all the way to being the Janis Joplin that the world would know, I think. Yeah, exactly. She worked, again, very hard on developing this unbelievable stage presence that she had. The way that she was able to connect with her audiences is, I think, unparalleled. I mean, I have interviewed people for the book who saw her in 66 uh, play at San Francisco State soon after she joined the band, and 
today they're still talking about that experience as if it just happened last week. It was that powerful. And especially I think for women, Janice was able to tap into these deep feelings, these losses, feelings of shame, disappointment, things that most of us want to hide and not express at all. We don't want people to know we even feel those things. But she was able to tap into that and then put it out through her vocals and just in such an authentic way and totally connect with people. So instead of singing to them, it was almost as she was singing for them. She was expressing these feelings that they had themselves and it just blew people away. Big Brother and the Holding Company didn't quite know what they were getting into, of course. And the success wasn't immediate, but it was a snowball downhill. Once it picked up momentum, it got almost out of control pretty fast. And obviously Monterey Pop was a big moment in there. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Big Brother... Janice loved that band and they had a very cool thing that they did when she joined they were very improvisational and they did a lot of cool punk rock stuff you know I love hearing some of their stuff and she was really into that too but she again she was a restless soul when it came to her music she didn't want to stick with one thing she was like a Neil Young type you know she wanted to keep doing different things and even early on soon after she joined the band she actually almost quit to join this kind of super group that elected Records was trying to put together that would have been her with the great Taj Mahal, Stefan Grossman, fabulous finger picker. So who knows what could have happened, but her love for the guys and they really did not want her to quit and do this. They had a month long residency in Chicago coming up, which on the surface was really a disaster because again, this was late summer of 66 and hippies were not very known quantities in Chicago, Illinois at that time. And people were just kind of horrified and they were having to play five sets a night at this club called mother blues and could barely get any audience in there. So the thing is, it was it forced them to really expand their repertoire. They, you know, wrote new songs, added more songs to their sets. And Janice had to work her butt off to get, you know, to get people's attention, to get them to stick around and listen. So it really helped her hone her craft as a performer on stage. So again, Big Brother, though, they were a democracy. Peter Alban was pretty much the band leader. Again, he was one of the guys that started the band. So gradually, though, people just you know, really glommed onto Janice by when they returned back from Chicago in the fall of 66. And even Jerry Garcia told one of the first uh, new rock zines that had just started at that time before Rolling Stone had started, hey, you know, Janice Joplin is amazing singer. And I think the band is working their material to be a better fit with her great vocals kind of thing. And so that's kind of what happened. And they just discovered, you know, more material that was perfect for them. And we're gradually building an audience. But it wasn't until, of course, about a year later after she joined that they did Monterey Pop. And then that's when really they got national attention for the first time. And again, Janice became the real focal point of the press and of people, you know, important people in the industry like Clive Davis at Columbia who would sign them, Albert Grossman, uh, Bob Dylan's manager, arguably the most famous music manager in the country, ended up signing them, etc. There's the part where, and it's such a stereotype, but I'm sure it didn't make it any less painful for the band when they see the cut of the Monterey Pop film and they realize, oh, geez, it's a lot of Janice. <laughs> yeah. Although I have to say, it's all in the eye of the beholder because if you 
you know, I've looked at that footage so many times. And of course, every time I see Ball and Chain, it just, it never goes away how powerful that performance is. I mean, it's so fresh and killer. But, you know, it does actually open with tight close up shots of the guys in the band doing the intro, the musical intro. So that is in there. Unfortunately, they did cut out this very long James Gurley guitar break. They did cut that out. And then, you know, once Janice starts singing, I mean, but realistically, I mean, you can't take your eyes away from her. So, I mean, Penny Baker, the great documentary filmmaker who just passed, he was nuts over her. And the camera just couldn't look away. The editor couldn't look away. So it's kind of understandable how that would happen. Well, it's, you let this sort of force of nature into your band. <laughs> it's going to take over. But I mean, there's a longstanding debate that you get into in the book. Big Brother and the Holding Company were one of the most sort of critically derided bands of their era in some ways. There always was this kind of running thing of they can't really play. They weren't up to Janice's talent. And what I didn't really know until I read your book is how aware Janice became of that criticism and how aware Albert Grossman was of that criticism and also propagated himself. And But at the same time, they were doing, as you said, there was something punk rock and cool about them yeah. that maybe people didn't appreciate. So, yeah, exactly. so where do you land on all that? Well, it's that whole feel versus technique kind of thing. I mean, technically, you know, they could pull it off, right? But their whole vibe was all about the feel. And that was the importance for them was to just kind of go with it. And yeah, they would hit bad notes or they would, you know, it was punk rock, you know, it was garage rock kind of thing. And I love that kind of music and stuff. Then you have these people like the Mike Bloomfields, the Paul Butterfields, you know, some really incredible, great technicians, really great, great players who would be very critical of their playing and and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, again, you could look at them and say, well, these guys just played the same kind of stuff over and over and over. It just kind of mattered what your taste is. The big break was because, yeah, Janice wanted to do other stuff. She was obsessed with Otis Redding. She was obsessed with soul music. She loved Aretha's Atlantic Records debut. She loved Etta James. I mean, she loved some of the stuff being cut in Muscle Shoals and Memphis. And she wanted to try to sing with that sound. And yeah, that was not in Big Brother's wheelhouse at all. They did what they did very well. But Janice wasn't content to just do one thing. She wanted to keep moving, keep trying different things. So yeah, ultimately, even if they'd been like the most perfect proficient technicians and super polished and all that kind of stuff, she would have eventually moved on still. The book gets at a, a bit the issue of whether she was entitled to sing this music, which is always a question that's asked. And people think it wasn't asked until recently, but actually it was asked going all the way back to, to the 60s and way before to jazz and all sorts of things. And she is an example of a white woman singing in a black style. Mm-hmm. And I think the meanest comment that anyone makes in the book is Mick Jagger, of all people, said, if I wanted to hear black singing, I'd go to see a black singer. It's uh, an interesting person for that to yes, be that saying that. Yes, pot calling the kettle black. <laughs> I was a bit taken aback by that, but where do you land on that and where did Janice land? And I also note that someone like Buddy Guy f- says flat out that Janice sang black. Yeah, you know, and that she, King, yeah. yeah. People that played with her, you know, were colorblind and I think Janice was colorblind when it came to music and music especially when she discovered Lead Belly at Bessie Smith early on. And then later, of course, Otis, when she saw his performances and heard his records. I mean, this is the music that really spoke to her, okay? 
And she loved that music. And through listening to that music, she was able to tap into her own soul, her own experiences, her own sorrows. And we all have sorrows, no matter what color your skin is, whatever. And she was born with this soprano pretty voice, but she that kind of voice didn't do it for her, you know? It would be like an artist doing paint by numbers or something, you know? Um, so I think the fact that the music that moved her happened to be primarily black music, and that's what she wanted to sing. That's the kind of music she liked. It's still going to be channeled through her own experiences, through her own voice, and it's going to come out being Janice, distinctly Janice. I mean, there's no other singer that sounds like her, no matter what color of their skin. Now, the thing that's interesting to me is, you know, you mentioned I wrote a book about Gene Autry. Well, guess who was the biggest Gene Autry fan and wanted to sing Gene Autry songs? Lead Belly. Mm. And John Lomax, who was kind of ushering him around and his manager, whatever, would not allow Lead Belly to sing Gene Autry songs because it wasn't appropriate for his persona that he was projecting a former convict, blues singer, etc. So he was not allowed under his, you know, when he was handling him to do those kind of songs. In fact, Lead Belly talks about that when he got to meet Gene Autry and, and does some of Gene Autry's songs from some Library of Congress recordings I've heard. So I think we run into trouble if we try to stop people from expressing themselves musically because of issues of race, color, those kind of things. Obviously, if someone is going to be a minstrel show, you know, blackface, I mean, that's horrific. So we don't want anything like that musically. And and I really don't think uh, Janice was like that. I don't think she was trying to copy black singers that inspired her. She was trying to do it in her own way. There's a scene where she goes to see Big Mama Thornton in concert and she actually sees her perform Ball and Chain and she's literally writing down the lyrics, which could be, you know, kind of an ultimate image of cultural appropriation, except that she asked Mama Thornton if she could cover it and gave her full appropriate songwriting credit for it. And thus, I presume, gave Big Mama Thornton some pretty serious checks from that, I hope. Oh, yeah. In fact, yeah, Big Mama Thornton wrote Ball and Chain and not even recorded it yet. What's very poetic about that whole relationship is that when Janice, back in the 50s, saw Elvis do Hound Dog on Ed Sullivan and loved it, of course, and loved Elvis, but she wanted to know more and she found the original recording that Big Mama had cut nearby Houston, Texas, you know, not far from Port Arthur, on Duke Records. Her original version, which is very different than Elvis's, has got a lot more grit and, you know, soul, and it's just amazing. And she loved that record. That became her favorite. And then, you know, yeah, fast forward 10 years later, she gets to see her at a little club. At that point, Big Mama Thornton's star had fallen uh, commercially as far as the music business goes. And yes, they did ask her permission, and she's like, yeah, if you you don't if it up, you know. <laughs> if you don't it's, fuck it up, we can say oh, it. Oh, it's okay. a, that's we're, right. We're on Sirius yeah. XM. All right. Yeah. So anyway, but yes, one thing about Janice was she loved to promote those singers who inspired her. So every time she did songs live, she always would tell who wrote the song. So she always gave Big Mama Thornton credit for it. 
as well as, you know, other artists whose work she covered. She would go into Dick Cavett and rave about Tina Turner, and Dick Cavett hadn't even, didn't even know who Tina Turner was at that point. And she helped pay for Bessie Smith's uh, gravestone, yeah. which was really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So she really liked to put it out there for people to learn about her heroes, and a lot of them were women. And it's also important to note how many women, as you point out, <laughs> were inspired by Janice. Yeah, Stevie exactly. Stevie Nicks and a million other people. Yeah, from Stevie Nicks to Alicia Keys. I mean, that's pretty cool. A wide range of different styles of artists have been inspired by the different facets of Janice's artistry. Now, when you get into Janice's drug abuse and her self-destructiveness, some of it seemed to be powered by a real sort of existential depression. She called it the cosmic blues. Her father had a similar thing. He called it the Saturday night swindle. What was that? Well, her dad was a pretty much a fatalist and told her when she first was kind of down and out in San Francisco, about 64 or something like that, hey, look, you know, it ain't ever going to get any better. You know, and Janice, <laughs> she had that 50s optimist, you know, you work hard and you get better and then you'll be happy one day. And basically his kind of existential angst was no matter how hard you work, you think you're going to get the Saturday night to go out and have fun. Well, guess what? That's going to suck too. You know, you're going to wake up with a hangover the next day and feel like shit. So Janice realized that no matter how much success she was going to have, there was always going to be maybe disappointment, loneliness, emptiness, other holes in her soul that, you know, as much as she wanted to be successful and wanted to be a rock star that wasn't going to fill that part. So yeah, she called it the Cosmic Blues. And it's one of my favorite songs that she wrote, Cosmic Blues, which is on her first solo album. I got them old Cosmic Blues again, Mama, which came out 50 years ago. This year, I can't believe that. Another moment that causes dread when you read it is when she kind of, in some ways it was inevitable, in some ways it wasn't, but when she shoots heroin for the first time, it's just like, uh-oh. And that led her down the path that led ultimately to her death. It's hard to see otherwise. Yeah, it's it's a horrible, horrible problem. And a lot of her heroes, you know, you know, Billie Holiday and a lot of the jazz players got into heroin. And, you know, there was this horrible kind of romantic kind of idea about heroin. And, of course, she really got into it when she did leave Big Brother and was trying to, for the first time, be a band leader, which takes a lot of work to learn how to instead of being a member of the band to run the band to hire the players to be in charge plus write new songs doing a whole new style of music etc and there was so much pressure she was getting tons of media attention and so she started just kind of going under that blanket of numb numbness of heroin and yeah and so many musicians I mean look at Eric Clapton Keith Richards Dwayne Allman I mean there were so many people from that same period that horribly fell into this that same trap and at the same time, as much as there are things that, when you look at it, seem to lead in the direction of, wow, she would have been pretty downcast at that point in her life. There's an awful fight with her mother where her mother says, I wish she'd never been born, which, yikes. And she was very <laughs> upset about the death of Jimi Hendrix, which people don't realize that they didn't know each other super well, but they had a real sort of affinity for each other. Yeah, they were tight. And 
so you could say, oh, geez, you know, things were bearing down on her. At the same time, what actually happened, as you clearly tell, is she just had the wrong kind of heroin. She did her dose that was for what she usually would have, but she had China White, I think, a very pure kind of heroin. Yeah. It was a total accident. Yeah, it was kind of like the whole fentanyl thing today. Exactly. And horribly, you know, Janice had a drinking problem for sure. And drinking... Alcohol is much worse on the voice than drugs, heroin. So basically, she was trying to cut back on the drinking. She loved her band. She loved working with her producer, Paul Rothschild. I think she was co-producing that record with him. She had a lot of, yeah, Pearl. She had a lot of input. And things were going well for her. But awfully, she was trying to wean herself off the drinking. Sadly, she runs into her dealer at the hotel she was staying in Los Angeles and she ended up by herself getting this really pure dose of China White just had come into the country for the first time it was I think something like eight people OD'd that same night that she did on the same heroin wow yeah so horribly that's what ended her life it was just an awful accident and they also didn't have the kind of rehabs that they have now. Well, yeah, she had been clean for about four or five months. So, of course, her tolerance was much lower as well. So, yeah, it was just she didn't have really a great support system to stay clean. Some of the people in her life who had helped her clean up weren't around at that time. And again, she was by herself. There was no one there to revive her. It was so pure, I don't know, maybe they couldn't have, who knows. But uh, yeah, it's awful. And usually she would mainline heroin. Again, she had just relapsed, so she was just skin popping. So, which it's a little bit less of an effect than, say, the way she had back in the past in her junkie days. And this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt. I had Holly George Warren, author of the excellent new biography, Janice, Her Life and Music. It's about Janice Joplin, of course. And be sure to check that out. And we will be back next week here at SiriusXM's Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts, Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. Always appreciated. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. See you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.